This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore. And in 1982, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan was released a great critical and financial success, and riding the wave of this reinvigorated Star Trek fandom came Ultimate Fantasy 1982, a Star Trek convention unlike anything before or since. And it has been described as the most infamous convention debacle in Trek fandom history. And here to talk with us about the incredible behind-the-scenes story of what would come to be known as the Con of Wrath, the man behind the upcoming documentary of that same name, Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechek. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thanks a lot. Oh, who called Who called it that? Oh, I guess I did. Okay. <laughs> so, such, a, such a brilliant, just easy fit for that situation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I have to remember, like, it feels like I've been working on this for forever, but uh, there was a lot of hoo-ha at the beginning, five years ago, when I knew it was going to be like a laid-back you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Adam Nimoy got his dad's documentary done in good time, and they're they're working on the DS9 documentary now. But those are called fully funded projects, <laughs> or or projects that are financed. And I knew this would be a little shade tree project until we got down to the end. So, and a lot of attention. And I talked to Chris, and I've talked to you know a lot of interviews, and and talked about it a lot. And then, aside from talking about it at conventions, we've been kind of laying low until the last year or so, and now we're making a push to get it wrapped up and get it edited. So thank you guys for... About the time I feel like I've talked about it to death, I go, you know, it's been two, three, four years maybe since I have. So thank you guys for asking me. No, it's it's great It's great to have you aboard, Larry. We, I, I met you for the first time in, in Las Vegas with the rest of the team and, uh, you know, been listening and watching. And, and one of the things that's really fascinating is just looking at, at your overall history, right? I mean, you've written... Star Trek The Next Generation Companion, Stellar Cartography, you've got Portal 47 going on, we knew the Con of Wrath was out there. What is it about this story that inspired you to take the leap into a full documentary film? Well, back back at the last century, no, not kidding, it feels like it. Uh, when I started this, uh, Portal 47 was just a twinkle in my eye. I knew it was out there somehow, but I had no clue what that would be. I just knew I, I wanted to do something new paradigm out of the box with everything, all the resources and assets that I had and the people I knew. So that was down the line. And up until then, I had been, uh, nothing wrong with this at all. Some of my best friends are word guys, but I had been a word guy and I had really wanted to break out of that box and do media. And I knew everybody just in the Trek world alone. I knew somebody, so many people that way. And, uh, and apologies, guys, if I'm a little gravelier today, I, uh, something attacked me allergy-wise a couple of days ago, and it's all, all in my throat, so 
we'll see how this goes. But if I don't scare too many people, but um, but yeah, I I uh, I had had a couple of chances to do some little media projects and do some video pods for the the original Star Trek modern tour that went through some amalgamations. Um, but I ran into a guy at an after party back home in Oklahoma City of all places who I heard talking about uh, the Con of Wrath and Ultimate Fantasy, and that is probably increasingly fading for a lot of people if they have any clue. But for me, it rang a bell because my first road trip when I was a kid in college to a con, and, um, and not just a con, but a show, was this thing called the Ultimate Fantasy in Houston, which from us in Oklahoma was about a six, eight-hour drive. And anyway, I went over to this guy because I had some really crazy memories of this uh, event that did not quite go as it was supposed to go. (laughs) Only, uh, you know, we just kind of let it roll off our backs and went on with it. But anyway, I met the guy, and it turned out, I said, you were there? And he says, I was on the tech crew. And I was like, oh, my God. And I I rarely in my life have I had such a – I always describe it as like the light bulb go off. It was like, oh, my God, this is something that um, should be preserved. And then I thought – you know, no, this is not something we should preserve, you know, like audio interviews like I'd done for so long. It's, it's, here's your chance, Larry, to get something on camera. And then I thought, oh my God, this will probably hang together as a documentary if you, you know, if the pieces went, if the practical things went together. And when I very quickly in my head added up the fact that he said most of the original organizers still lived in Houston, and I knew that, uh, you know, this involved the original cast, the old, the entire original cast, you know, no bloody A, B, C, or D. Even even Leonard, who was not there, was involved with a story. So, uh, Anne Har Bennett and Kirstie Alley and Merritt Buttrick. And, um, you know, pay no attention to those who said that Las Vegas was Kirstie Alley's first Star Trek convention. She actually did a couple in 82 before it was known that she wasn't going to be coming back as Savick again. And this and this was one of them. So, um, uh, I, I in my head, I kind of did the math really quickly because I'd never done anything like this before. I was wanting to branch out, but I was hopefully going to do something that was smart, that was doable. And I had, the last couple of years, I back then, I had gotten to know Roger Nygaard, who was one of the producers of Trekkies, and just crossing paths. And he had told me about a his non-Trek, he did the first two, Trekkies and Trekkies 2, uh, with Denise. And the second one, and the third one, he, was, he had, was doing another one that had nothing to do with Star Trek, but he had told me how he was just doing little bits and pieces of it at a time. When he would go somewhere for another assignment, he had an interview list, and he gradually worked in the people all over the world that he wanted to talk to. So um, I just kind of having that experience, like, don't be scared of this. This is, this is very doable. And, you know, this is in 2011, 2012, back before. I mean, you think what digital world has exploded even since then. And this was, this was when I first started this, there was somebody was telling me, hey, there's this new thing called Kickstarter. You should look at that. <laughs> I mean... That's that really kind of shocks me, and I think that was only like six years ago, seven years ago. Right. But anyway, but all of that came together and kind of exploded in my head, and I told myself I would give myself time. I wouldn't. There's no way I was going to get this done, like funded it in nine months, because part of this was a learning curve for me. So I was in talking to people, two key people, um, my friend Neil Halford, who just recently has done an award-winning horror short called The Case of Evil. Um, had a camera and was experimenting with it, a new one, and he said, I'll be your DP. I'll be your director of photography. And I said, no, wait, wait, wait. I'm not talking about money or anything. And he's like, oh, no, no, I want to do this. He says, like, hearing you talk about it, talking about this, like you said, the 
the uh, you know Trek's Trek's most fabulous failure, or or you know, <laughs> richest rags to riches to rags or riches to rags to riches story. So it, it is. It's a phoenix story because of all the dreams this event had from the people that organized it as a first, not just a convention, but basically Star Trek's first rock show, arena show, and um, and then what happened, and then even though it did not quite go as it was supposed to how it still happened anyway, which was kind of amazing. And whether or not given, you know, 30 years later now and the way franchises and pop culture and celebrities and fans and events and and social media and cell phones and all of that are, would something like that happen again? Could it happen again the way it happened in 1982? So he jumped, uh, my friend Neil jumped in and said he'd do that. My friend David Dobson, who's a professional editor, said the same thing. Oh, I want to work with you on this. Wait, 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 I have no budget. He said, I don't care. I, we'll work out something. I want to do it. So that skeleton crew is all that's really been... An, and my good friend Kevin Hopkins, who's been my lifelong logo provider, um, did that wonderful Con of Wrath, you know, take off on, on the Wrath of Con logo that I've just used on the graphics. And from that little skeleton crew, that's, until now, that's all that's been really involved with it, aside from all the wonderful fans on... Um, I didn't do a Kickstarter because I knew I was going to do this long-term thing, but I had a PayPal donation page. Still do. And I've done a live event that gradually got to be called the Dr. Trek Show for two hours, and people could do a crowd-funded $20 and have a real basic uh, screen credit. And I've done that for four or five years whenever I've been a con guest, a live you know, convention guest. So um, so that's been it. And but, but the thing was it gave me enough room learning on a learning curve I mean, I'm a content guy, so I interviewing I've done for a billion years. You know, it was it's the back end that I always knew it was production, and as long as I had a team with me, I knew I'd be good at that. But as far as the story and interviewing people and getting what I wanted and tracking things and piecing things together, um, that's in my wheelhouse. Now, some of the other great crazy things like some of the politics and some of the uh, finagling and being patient and working on people and giving them some time, you know, to come around. Um, that's been interesting, and that's where going five and six years, if I'd had to do this in nine months, it would not have been the same. You know, if I'd been had all the money in the world, in nine months it wouldn't be the same uh, event. It wouldn't be the same documentary that it is now. So that's that's one good thing about it. But it's the time to wrap it up. So yeah, to, to that to that point, you know, you're you're getting the final stages of production, but you know, we'll get into the we'll kind of unpack all the the documentary stuff here as we talk. But you know, let's let's get back to to what was Ultimate Fantasy '82 because it's kind of a lost chapter of of Star Trek fandom history. I mean, the whole thing just sounds incredible. Like, uh, just the the planning was there, as you said, it was going to be a true rock show. That's <laughs> what it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, we have to peel this away. I mean, forget the internet, forget cell phones, forget, you know, Comic Cons and the, the, what we think of them now, and forget, you know, mainstream, the Geeks One, Big Bang Theory, number one comedy show. I mean, you have to go back to the 70s and the 80s. You have to go back to, um, you know, Star Wars was even brand new five years out, but Star Trek's first, that first New York convention. Uh, was in 70, January 72. So not only was it only 10 years after the very first Star Trek convention, that was the very first media convention. The The term science fiction convention since the 30s had been authors and artists and maybe 100, 200, 300 people. Even the Worldcons were maybe 1,000 people, you know, or whatever. And at a hotel, and it was the very, you know, panels were actual panel discussions 
the first time I heard people talking about a panel with one person, I'm like, isn't that a speaker, not a panel? How do you have one person panels? But anyway. But, you know, my old school with the art show and the costume contest and the panels and, you know, readings and all all the stuff that's made sci-fi fandom such a cool thing for so many years. But it very much a niche thing, you know. Um, it wasn't quite being in the closet, but, you know, you, you wore your subtle little signs and knew your friends. So, you know, it had a real Star Trek a convention that was a reaction. Actually, the, all, the Star Trek early fandom, and that's something else we get into in, in Connor Rath, Star Trek fandom was born, really, or the organizers were women. That's why I laugh at this whole geek girl revolution, because of Spock and the Vulcan allure and fanzines and fan fiction and fan fictions being the organizing catalyst and, and zines and zine collecting. And that was half or more of the impetus behind Star Trek clubs and then conventions growing out of clubs and the group in New York you know, being being early zine people and organizers too. So um, that's the roots of Star Trek fandom also. But even then, it was, you know, the first few years of Star Trek, all those fa- those Trek fans would go to the sci-fi cons and only want to talk about Star Trek. And that was where you used to have the, you know, we talk about the Star Wars, Star Trek rivalry and all that now, which is a media... Tr- Back in the old days, I, what I used to call the lit fan snob, snobbery, was, you know, oh, well, if you're going to be a true sci-fi fan, you need to read the classics. You need to look at something besides just Star Trek. And that was where the division was, and that's why the New York Con happened. That's why I started my, even though my friends, God bless them, back in Oklahoma City, that's why I started my convention, ThunderCon. It was like, can we just have a a media con with the things we want to do and not have it, you know, because we've done it that way for 40 years. You know, well, that's not good enough, guys. And then it got embarrassing when you'd still have 100, 200, 300 people coming for the LitCons, and all of a sudden you had 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000. Oh, gosh, actors' faces, they have power. Conventions really have changed in the last, you know, even, like, I've been to San Diego Comic-Con a couple times myself. So I went once in 2005, and it was me and my dad, actually, and we were just in California, and we we actually got in the last day. There was like, oh, you can get in. It's 2005, so, so you know, 10, 12 years ago, and you could get in. And now, and I went again in 2011 with my friends, and we had to like, like the minute that the tickets sold, you had to get online. You had to click, 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 click. And and now, uh-huh. if you don't, if you don't pre-register, you don't give any chance to get in. And I feel like you know, there's something about the, the kind of underground, you know, small fan circle things that we've lost over the years, and it becomes this giant, just overwhelming media. Con and it's all it's a great experience. I recommend everybody go to a mega convention, definitely. Uh, but there there is something to be said for kind of the smaller, like everybody is so plugged in and that kind of thing, as opposed to like I don't I don't want to say they're sellouts, but sometimes it feels that way with these giant well, conventions, you know. You know what well, they are when they well you know when they turned into Mark when you know I used to say when Hollywood got involved that was that when you went and you were able to get in the that was the first year or two that I cuz I never I was like I'm not a comics guy why would I go to comic con and people were like no 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 there's media there and you should so when trek world kind of blew up in 05 and 06 and I was kind of wandering around what I was going to do the rest of my life um I went down for a day cuz my cuz my friend Neil who's my DP he lives in San Diego and I said I'll go down and stay with you and go downtown and check it out for a day and um and I was blown away. But yeah, that was, and I went as a pro, but that was also when you could walk in with clippings on paper. Exactly. And get a pro badge. Yeah. You know, that was, I think I got, I was like the last cusp of that. But I didn't, because within a couple of years, 
all the the momentum of Hollywood going, oh my God, this is a great marketing vehicle. And it's only down, you know, they don't have to spend a ton of money to go somewhere else. They're not going to some foreign country. But San Diego might as well be a foreign country to L.A. because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's in the summer in July. It's, it's usually, now sometimes it's been humid, but it's usually refreshing and it's on the ocean and it's kind of laid back and everybody feels like they're on a holiday. Well, it's a great city. I love San Diego. And yeah, and they've got that downtown area and their convention center and it all, all the logistics are there. So it just exploded. And yeah, within a couple of years, the the crazy pool of tickets, and and so it's you know it's gone insane, and to the point now where there's actually, and then all the other regional comic cons caught that and took off, like Seattle and Phoenix and Denver and Salt Lake City and and New York, and so the point where now there's even there's there's you you're mentioning this. I remember those first couple of years because I was a comics guy, right? But I I think Comic Con, I think of guys standing there paging through boxes of comics, you know that. You know, oh, I need a, you know, a Fred Smith number seven. Okay, okay. But now it's like the, the cast of Glee at Comic-Con. It's like, oh, really? Where's the connection there? I don't really get it. But because <laughs> one guy in that cast used to, you know, because Nathan Fillion was in Firefly, now we're going to have the Castle cast down here. <laughs> I, You know, which, cool. I mean, I'm not complaining. I just, at times you kind of go, mm, okay. But right. even those first couple years, I remember seeing the, you know, you know, bless them. The old comic fans, you know, sitting there with their boxes of comics, kind of, you know, in trench coat and whatever, kind of sitting there, uh, you know, gray-headed, older fans, at, a, at like a table in the diner going, why are all these people here? I just want to come see my comics. I want all this crap here. I can't, couldn't come over and drive. I had to park five miles away. You know, and I, I mean, I empathize with that. And what's funny now is the last year or two, I have seen, I think there's one in San Diego, but there's there's probably is a wave of of pushback, like... At last, a real Comic Con, you know, a real comics convention just for comics fans, you know, without all the Orthodox Comic Con. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's you know, I, I don't. It's not like there may be peak Comic Con coming. I don't know. Maybe we're there already. I know there's a, there's a certain capacity when they started getting to the fire marshal limits. Yeah, it gets to the point where it's not even. It's not enjoyable to walk around the dealer's floor at some points because it's just so full. You're like shoulder to shoulder. It's like groups of people being herded around. It's like, man, I can't even like browse in a nice leisurely way. So it does well, you, reach you know, saturation you know point. Uh, yeah. You know what's interesting, though, as you, as you talk about this. Now, Larry, I appreciate you being on the show because I finally have somebody my own age here and who can <laughs> actually remember going to conventions in the 80s, right? And Star Trek conventions in the 80s were plentiful and huge, even though it wait, was... Wait, wait, the 80s? The 80s. Okay, yeah, tell, tell, tell me all about it, Uncle Ken. There you go. <laughs> but anyway, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, I was there in the 70s, too, but I'm just saying that in the... I'm totally kidding. In, in, yeah, I know, but in Boston, right, that's where mm -hmm. I, I, we would fill up the Heinz Convention Center, which was... It's, it's a big, a, a, a big facility in the city. And you, if you had Nimoy and, and uh, Shatner together, and they would do that a lot, I mean, it was bigger than I was like yeah. this Las Vegas convention that we just went to. Was like, this is huge. This is I'm going. This is nothing, <laughs> guys. I remember unimpressed. standing in the very back, you know, try, with my binoculars trying to see these guys um, back, you know, quote unquote, back in the day. So as, as I, I understand, Sandy, that that's a whole different um, that's a whole different event, and it's it's multi. But you know, when when Star Trek was just on fire back then, after. 
1982. And I, I remember meeting all these guys and, and seeing these actors, but the crowds back then were huge, even though it was kind of quote-unquote underground. It was just well, enormous. Well, look, and think of that, because there was a time... You know, when when the late 90s came out, first we just said computers and then the Internet and then social media. But there was a big question about what what the digital age was going to do to conventions. Was it going to make it moot? Because what do you, you know, back in the day, uh, back in the day, B-I-T-D, um, we're going to say that so often. You went to a convention, you went to see actors and stars and, and behind the scenes people too even, but you went to see them. And it wasn't just – and you wanted to get an autograph, but you wanted to hear what they had to say because we didn't have YouTube and you didn't have – I mean you didn't get a chance to see them live unless you trundled down to the – what was it? The Heinz Center? What did you say? Yeah. Yep, yeah. Heinz Convention unless you Center. Trundled, trundled down there and and went to see them live. That was a thrill. You didn't see them on the latest YouTube whatever, and you, there weren't 5,000 channels showing the 82 different old shows they had been on already. You know, there were just the th- and it was the original cast. There wasn't, like I said, bloody A, B, C, or D yet. It was just nothing, just, just them, them. and yeah. and and the only other phenomenon that existed was Star Wars, and that cast didn't do conventions. They were movie people. They didn't do convention. You know, some of the some of you know, <laughs> sure. some of the some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, not the leads, but the rest of the cast would do conventions, and there really wasn't anything to compete. You know, Doctor Who was not marketed in the states. It was. It was, you know, the PBS viewers in the States in the 80s were starting to pull it up by the bootstraps, but it wasn't even anything as far as a fan magnet. And it was just Star Trek and Star Trek. And then those guys were so accessible. And then when the movies came out, they had the movies to promote, and it was every two years. And, oh, what's the latest rumor? And unless you were like a subscriber to Interstat, you know, there was no internet. So, and let, you know, and your star log came every month or maybe every two months. And there was like slow motion snail mail letters in that. But, you you went to a convention not just to see the actors and all that to get a lot of your news and to see what cool products were out there and and what people were doing on their own you know the the uh, ancient Etsy version of you know fan built stuff before there was the licensing was enforced I mean, yeah. it was and there there was no eBay so you couldn't just go looking for your favorite right. oh where's this issue of this or this model of that like you got to go physically go out there and do it so that just I don't know maybe it's because it was. Uh, before my time, so to speak, like there's a certain nostalgic factor that I think is so cool. Yeah, no, no, that's what you know. But that's so. What I was going to say was part of the the reason you had so many coming back then was because there was no competition. All the original flavors of why you went to a convention were there, and 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 it was special. And there wasn't there weren't 82 other fandoms and things competing for attention. And you know there wasn't a supernatural con down the street and a you know whatever whatever going on, but. But then when the computer came in and digital age and social media, I remember people wondering if conventions would would die. And that coupled with Star Trek's kind of malaise when the two shows were on and split the audience and then Enterprise and the ratings were going down. And people, I mean, and Vegas was suffering, especially after Enterprise went off the air. And for two or three years there, it was, um, you know, it was really, and, and the rumors about the experience closing even. So it's like, are we even going to lose our mecca here? Is is Star Trek fandom going to dry up? So on one hand, um, uh, uh, JJ, the Kelvin timeline movies, as much as they were debated and what all that, they did bring a ton of fresh fandom in. But by that time, that excitement extended to the point where now I think of Vegas, like you said, it's not it's not like ten thousand people in a hall. 
it's not big like that, even though it's the biggest single Star Trek convention in the world. But um, it's turned with social media. Now it's a synergistic thing where it's um, it's the family reunion. And you, you don't have to go get all your news. You may get the latest breaking something there, but you don't have to rely on that for all your news and rumor and gossip. And if you weren't there, you may see, you know, everybody and their dog is posting their pictures and their video and everything online, and that's cool. But it really is, the it's, as many people say, it's about seeing their family reunion and having the family grow every year and just the people that you experience with, especially if you're from all over the country. So, but yeah, uh, absolutely. So, yeah. so the so the con of wrath, the ultimate fantasy, was called the ultimate <laughs> yeah, fantasy. Yeah, I was about, I was about to bring it back, Larry. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but it was so in '82. That sounds like an ancient times ago, but it was it was only ten years into, um, you know, about the first five years. The Star Trek convention was this thing that happened in New York, and then you know, Bejo started having hers in L.A. And so I'm a schmucky kid in Oklahoma. I'm going, wow, I wish I could get to L.A. or New York because, you know, God forbid there ever be a Star Trek convention here in the middle of the country, you know. And then you'd hear about, well, maybe Houston or Chicago. Then, you know, L.A., Chicago, well, still fine, all the big cities. But after five or six years, there were, you know, tentative steps and baby steps, and the actors would pitch their prices low enough where as long as the outfit was reliable and, you know, they got burned a lot of times, sometimes by crooks and sometimes by well-meaning starry-eyed fans. You know, everybody else is doing convention. Why can't we? Oh, we only had 200 people. I'm sorry, Mr. Doohan. We can't pay you. But 10 years had gone by to where it was getting a little more. And, and the group that had done Houston Con, or the, had, were the most recent ones, which was an old sci-fi, nostalgia I mean, Westerns and old Hollywood and everything combined into one as it was evolving into the 70s and the 80s. The group that had done that for a couple of years had had Walter and George and Jimmy come in 82 to an infamous, infamous I mean, 81, to an infamous uh, quasi-sabotage convention that later became called KrogerCon because they got cheated out of their hotel. And at the last second, they found an empty Kroger store that had been, you know, closed and they got in and realized the air conditioning only worked at about 40%, and it was, you know, oh, man. June in oh, Houston. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that was their imp- – but anyway, that was the seed of talking to Walter about that, That'll this be your next dream. documentary, Larry. Kroger Con. Yeah, Kroger Con. <laughs> no, I've already decided that if I ever do – I mean, I think someone someone needs to do a convention about the early New York conventions. I've talked to a couple of people that were there and before any of those people pass on. But there's another one I want to do because when I talk to people – um, this is about both people who were there primarily, but it's it's the cast. When I decided I would do this, I, I and I found out that um, that the organizers were still pretty much in Houston, to, except for one person, and we got him in Seattle. Uh, and I realized that if if and I told myself that if Walter and if Hard Bennett would talk to me, because they were the ringleaders of making it survive, of starting it, Walter got it going with the cast, and then Harv and he made it survive once it was melting down on site. If they would talk to me, then I was a go no matter if anybody else would. And, you know, because I'm not throwing money around here. And they both said, you know, not just, yeah, but hell yeah, and that they had stories that had not been told to anyone yet. So between the two of them and the organizers, I knew that then if I just started finding fans who'd been there and some of the dealers that had been there and anybody else on the periphery, that that would be it. And then I didn't want it to just be a talking head parade. So I wanted to do walk and talks on the sites and find archival footage and maybe even do some animation, some CG to kind of, you know, dress things up. 
but I, I just had to get, I just had to see what was there and go. So, um, so along the way, it's what's amazing to me is among the groups of people, because that's part of the story is how all those circles of people made it happen, even though it had no right to keep going from the cast on down, the cast, the dealers, the organizers, and the fans. And to the fans, one fan who we have on camera uh, was the one who came, you know, I know it's a shock, but in the 80s, there were a lot of snarky fandom. There was a lot of snarky. <laughs> I thought the internet was the invention of snarky No, fandom. no, no. And um, I know, I'm kidding. Uh, so by halfway through the weekend with all the stuff that was, you know, the roof falling in on so many crazy things happening and people being aggravated, the ultimate fantasy was being called the ultimate fiasco, the ultimate fallacy, the ultimate F-up. And one girl on Sunday afternoon, they were. she tells a story. They were walking to dinner, and she says, Oh, my God, you guys, because Star Trek II had just premiered two weeks earlier, right? So everyone's all excited and flush. Oh, my God, that's more like it. it was, you know, they were all excited and flush about the Wrath of Khan being out. You know, it was the number one movie. It was incredible. People were like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just imagine seeing the Wrath of Khan for the first time, not knowing that it was always going to be the bar forever for every Star Trek movie <laughs> after that. And two weeks later, this happens with all the cat, Harv and the entire cast there. So this girl is walking back Saturday, Sunday after they've all survived this weekend and they're just kind of limping home. And she says, oh, my God, you guys. They were talking some of these you know, snarky names. She goes, no, 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 you guys, listen, listen. We've just survived the con of wrath. And they all like died laughing. And they went back and they were talking to some button makers in the dealer's room. And the button make, people with a button machine started making... I survived the Con of Wrath button. So the title actually wow. goes to that weekend. That's awesome. So, you know, it, all the plans to me sound incredible. Like, how many, how much of these planned activities actually took place? Because I know they were going to have a, a talk show on a, on, a, on a Delta Shield stage and a one-act play by Walter Koenig and a laser light show and an orchestra concert. Like, did all those things happen or did they all? Well, it well, yeah, not to give everything away, but again, there was a regular <laughs> convention happening called Houston Con. And the, the ultimate fantasy, which today sounds like a really bad porn movie name, um, the ultimate fantasy, because it was the first time the whole cast was supposed to be all together on stage. Uh, and then they wound up not having Leonard, but there's a story behind that too, which adds to it. But anyway, the ultimate fantasy was at the arena. Uh, literally, it was an arena show at the arena where the Houston Rockets used to play. Yeah, the the, the summit. Yeah, because I'm summit. actually I'm actually I'm actually from Houston, uh, and so I, and I live there. So it's interesting. And, I have an interesting perspective on that. And you know what the summit is today, right? Yeah, it's Lakewood Church. It's Joel Osteen's mega church. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I want to say that we have, we ask, and it turns out like their tech director is a Trekkie, and they have let us film in there five or six times and gone up in the balcony. And as long as we we had, they had like one basic rule about just stay away from their trademark stage. And I'm like, I don't care because that's one we want the middle of the room where the stage was, and the overhang. So yeah, so some of the locate we did a lot of you know location shooting and had people remembering so instead of just sitting down they're on the site and it's been you know obviously it's been remodeled and it's not a basketball court right. in the middle it's got all the seats there but that was awesome to be there um and filming there and also at the place where the old shamrock hilton was which is where the convention was the shamrock hilton was torn down the 80s which was a, co a controversial story in itself but the convention center attachment the annex to that is still standing the texas medical center owns it and we were in there shooting for a couple of days, people doing walk and talk stories. And there's a goofy thing, you know. And that part of this is, I don't know how much, 
But aside from everybody that's been involved, and I've probably talked to too many people, but because now we have just that much more work to do. But some of it's some of it's some of my story from that day, and uh, my friends and my little brother, the four of us that went down, you know, ourselves. But um, so yeah, so it's 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 a piece of history that I didn't want to have wiped out. It's a fun piece of of history that I want to compare and contrast with today's you know conventions and fandom. Um, and there's a couple of sub-threads, like I said. Like, one of them is, would... Um, uh, I mean, they weren't thrilled about it when the thing went bankrupt, and they were, on Friday, all the cast were pulled... You know, Harv got the cast together and said, guys, we can't allow this to blow up in our face. We've, we've had this hit movie out for two weeks. No one's going to care about the people in Houston, but this will throw, blow back on us And if we, if we don't stay with this. And so they all decided to stay, including Shatner. They did all... Three of the arena shows they were scheduled to do, even though there was like not, I mean, there's like one one hundredth of the people that were there, you know, uh, maybe not, maybe one fiftieth of the people there. So it's that's what. So there are some of the fans that said, "Oh, gee, was it a problem? I got everything I wanted. I don't know, but you know, I didn't care that I was there were eight hundred people in the arena, not eighteen thousand. I was right there with my people I'd never seen before. So." You know, and then I mean, some of the fun has been set, has been, what if that had happened today? Because there have been, you know, people have said, well, big deal. There's been conventions that flopped since then, like you know, a lot of them. You hear about them all the time, and that's true. They've all been in the, you know, so you know, they instantly got tweeted and Facebooked, and people shot, you know, whatever, and the whole world knew about it instantly. But there's something about the fact that not only was this pre-social media, pre-cell phone, you know, days. It was the only. There was only one real fandom that was out connecting with its fans, and that was not just Star Trek, but the original cast Star Trek. You know, this is five years for the next generation. So, um, all of that kind of made it a goal. It was a simpler time. It was a gentler time. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, there's things about fandom and conventions and dealers uh, that have not changed at all, which comes through too. So it's fun. You know, it's fun both of those. Well, even the formats are all the same. Yeah, <laughs> very little has changed over this many years. It's yeah. incredible. Oh, I was gonna say. So, if I did another documentary, one of the groups that I've talked to is a lot of the dealers that were there, and there's some dealers that were, you know, vent- having vendor booths then that still are now, thirty years later. And wow. I want to do. I said I wanted to do. I keep kidding that I want to do one just about them. Instead of calling it Carnies, call it mm-hmm. uh, Connies. But, <laughs> But, that's actually pretty clever. And that's just, an interesting aspect, yeah. Yeah, just talk to the guys that have seen everything, seen everything over there. You know, the little cons, you know, and their stories from some of these things and the actors they ran into and some of the goofball organizers and, you know, the big ones, the little ones, the rise of the Comic-Cons and all of that would be, I think, would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've been pretty impressed in recent years with that Comic Palooza down here in Houston. Um, we've got we've had Patrick Stewart, Avery Brooks. I mean, we've had a lot of legitimate, you know, big stars. I mean, outside of just Star Trek as well. So uh, there were there was a, there was a time around college uh, when when there wasn't in my college, I should say, in the in the you know uh, two thousand five to two thousand nine ish. There was like no really good big conventions here. I remember me and my roommate at the time. We went to a quote unquote combo convention. It was like in a abandoned office depot in a mall, and we're like, ooh, this is See? interesting. <laughs> Well, there were there were people for years that said that oh, the Ultimate Fantasy ruined Houston for fan, for conventions and fandom. For one thing, like actors wouldn't go there and dealers wouldn't go there, and 
there, you know, the local fandom would try to have cons, but they could never get back to the stability they had in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s uh, as one of the original big fandom cities. And and even lately, like you had what you've had controversies the last two or three years with. Right? Yeah, there was a Space like, City Comic Con had a serious problem uh, a couple of years ago. So yeah, it's well, uh, and they were fi- I, I and the and Comic Palooza was suing them, or the city was suing them over Space City, the name, right? And and uh, then somebody there was another anyway. It's like somebody says, like, what's in the water in Houston with the the views and activities of these conventions do not represent the city of Houston. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow you pulled off the Super Bowl though, Zach. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so like, what what what's the uh, what's the timeline now that you're looking at to, to finally well, get this thing launched? Well, uh, this is I, I keep saying this summer. I'm trying to get it out for this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what, what, we're, what's going to come still... out first, Larry? What's going to come out first, the Connor Wrath or Discovery? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know it was a race, but I think you're going to win, Larry. I would hope the Connor Wrath would, but. <laughs> Listen, I you know you know uh, Rod uh, Rod Roddenberry in his documentary the uh, Trek Nation when he started it was like two thousand one or something crazy two thousand two thousand three uh, I was there the first year they were shooting at Vegas. In fact, I think they shot the first year there was a con in Vegas before Creation had it when when Slanted Fedora did the first Vegas con at that ranch motel. It wasn't even at the Hilton. Um, I think that was the first year. But anyway, you know, it. he went through several directors and editors, well, not directors, but editors, and, and, and what it was going to be, and would it be cinema, or would it be for TV, and they finally sold it to the Science Channel. And Anyway, it took eight years, and the last two or three years, he's like, I don't even want to talk about it. I don't even want to talk about it. It's just like dragging out. But when I told him I was doing this, he just looked at me and he said, I said, I'm not going to be in a rush. I'm going to take my time. And he looked at me and goes, just don't take eight years. <laughs> so we're ahead of that. We're ahead of that. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping for later this year. Again, it's it's a small. I'm I'm ramping up uh, fundraising too. Um, I mean, for you know, producer level funders to to get on with posts now because now we're in the thing where it's not just me and it's not just uh, Neil and I going somewhere to shoot uh, people. You know, in a couple of areas, Houston and up to Seattle, and then I've picked off a few people. Uh, on my own when I've been at conventions that overlap. So, but you know, but so also with the time. So we have George, we have Michelle, we have Walter, we have the late great Har Bennett, who uh, four years before he passed away, and uh, his wife told me it would be his. He was great. Uh, we talked about a lot of other things besides Connor Rath, even because I'd never done a sit down with him, and we do always promise to do one. And his wife told me that it would be his. She said, "This is great, but this is going to be his last uh, camera interview." So wow. He seemed like a very legitimate guy, just very grounded. I mean, that's that's the persona he he seemed to. I don't know. That 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 that's what I got from him. But in your meeting with him, was it was it very much like that? Was he a very humble guy? Yeah. Well, it was very funny. Um, because we had been, you know, like I when I came to L.A. was the Next Generation era, so I missed uh, all of his movies, and then he had done some other projects after that, and he'd done a lot of things before them. You know, he he was Mister. He he was the guy that originated the TV miniseries. He did Rich Man Poor Man, and uh, and um, two or three more of the uh, uh, the Jesse Owens story TV movie. He did Leonard with um, um, oh my God, I've just gone blank. Uh, Elsa in Casablanca, um, Inger Bergman. Um, he uh, he did her last role playing Golda Meir, a woman called Golda, 
won awards for all of these. Had LeVar Burton in uh, the Jesse Owens story. Didn't star LeVar, but LeVar was one of the angry uh, 68 athletes at the Mexico City Games. Um, he done a ton of things. And then he did The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Salvage One, if you remember that one. He, he had a lot of TV and a lot of big projects that he did and has awards for before he got pulled into Star Trek. So, uh, yeah, he was, a down, he was a producer guy. He found Nick Meyer, you know, to, you know. So, um, so, yeah, and then did his movies and then walked away after they had the, the dispute over six. They wouldn't do his script. And, and, uh, and pretty much after that was done, although he produced a couple other things. But anyway, I, so I missed his active time. And for years after I was, you know, editing Communicator and doing all my, uh, my first big wave, the first 10, 15 years I heard, it was like, okay, we're going to sit down and have an interview, right? After we got to know each other, we met a couple of times. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. And we never did, never did, never did. And when that spark for the Con of Wrath happened, I called him and I said, okay, we're finally going to do that interview. Are you ready for this? And by that time, he was retired and living in the middle of Oregon. And it was like not easy to get to him. So we road tripped up there, actually. Um, drove all the way up the five, up the up all the way through California to get up there. But uh, and spent a Labor Day weekend, a Memorial Day weekend with him in 2011. Um, and uh, anyway, it was great because we. I said, can we talk about more than the Con of Wrath? So we t I've got things of him talking on camera about some of the things that uh, Trek related. And I mean, we, you know, we didn't go into detail on the movies because I knew I couldn't do that, but in some general terms. And he told me some, he knew, he went to school with Jeffrey Hunter and was telling me Jeffrey Hunter stories from college days. And he got to tell his version of the story when he was a junior executive at ABC and ABC sent him out to fire Gene on the pilot of The Long Hunt of April Savage which has been like alluded to a couple of times in Bob Justman's book, but I, I had to ask him and he told me his end of it. So, you know, which set the stage for 10 years later, why Gene was bitter about, you know, not only was he being demoted, he was being demoted by this guy and they had to work through that. And, you know, eventually they did. But uh, it's like, my God, of all, you know, it's a small town of all the, of all the things to come full circle. So anyway, but that was, that was a real highlight. And then staying in touch with him a little bit. And then, um, he and his and his uh, wife, his last wife, both of their health went down at the same time, and they weren't even living. They were she was in hospice, and he was taking care of himself. And people, he died a couple of days before Leonard did two years ago, right. and no one knew about week. it for a week, right? And people all thought he the word didn't come out for a week because no one in that town knew that they should call Hollywood and tell the trades that Har Bennett died. You know, that's how his wife was out of commission. And she wasn't available to do that, and, and his family was, I don't want to say he was estranged from most of his older family, but he was separated from them. And it took a week for the news to get out, and um, it turned out that he actually died two days before Leonard did, but, you know, kind of was in that eclipsing, so. And Maurice Hurley had died, what, a yeah. little before, a little after that as well? Yeah, so. yeah. So, anyway, so I was very very glad to have had him, but so Walter, George, Nichelle, um, Wendy Doohan speaks for Jimmy. Um, um, I'm sure she had a lot of things to say about the the fan circuit, being that's where she came from, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, she remembers the she remembers the Connor Rath weekend as mom with two kids, and you know, and Jimmy coming back. And she says, "Well, I kind of only went over there once or twice, but I stayed in our room at the hotel and went down to the pool with the kids, and you know, Jimmy would come back and you know, and then calm down and." <laughs> 
so that was a whole that was a whole weekend thing you know i mean it wasn't just one day it was like it was like a whole weekend some of these other conventions that you hear about have gone you know flopsies they would hang with the infamous fedcon usa usa in dallas not the not the long-running fedcon in europe um it was going to be the first time it was it was going to be the last time that the name was licensed to the states um and I was I was there for that. And they when that fell apart Saturday morning, they said everybody gather in one of the ballroom sections. So they had dealers, actors, the fans who were there, you know, everybody like hung out until two or three in the afternoon and then they made a go of it and then everybody, you know, went away. But but no, the Con of Wrath, the Ultimate Fantasy Show, and Houston Con Convention, which shouldn't have been linked, but they wound up being linked. I mean they were overlapping in, in people working them, but they should have been separate entities financially and you know structurally and all that. But they both, thanks to the Hilton Hotel, the, Sher- the, the Shamrock Hilton, and thanks to fifteen you know reasons why they got interlinked and, and you know impacted and that, impacted and that's each where other. Kind of, that's where some of the problems came from. Is that right? Yeah, both ends, both ends. Yeah, the the hotel overbooked and had four different groups there, and so when they heard that the the Houston the uh, uh, Production Ventures Incorporated, which was the corporation doing uh, uh, the Ultimate Fantasy, when they heard that it was bankrupt, they went, "Oh, good, we'll kick out the Trekkie kids," uh, because they were lowest on the totem pole. So they also they'd also been paid for rooms through package deals at that. Co- so when the corporation went away, they technically they'd been paid, but they had no money. So technically, they were sitting there with with these hundreds of people in rooms that hadn't been paid for. So they were kicking people out of rooms. But on the other hand, the convention people had the rooms covered with their with their line of credits from their from their American Express cards. So there shouldn't have been a problem. But that just that just magnified the chaos. Um, the, as Harv says, the homeless sea of fans and suitcases all through the lobby and out in the parking lot. You know, in in June in Houston. So, um, so anyway, so it's, yeah, it's, it's the Con of Wrath is about, I want it to be, maybe I'm aspiring too much, but I don't think so. I think I want it to be this tale preserved, this whole saga. Uh, but I also want the human, I want all the human stories to come through. And there's all kinds of little sidebar wacky doodle stories, the exploding weather balloon that almost burned people. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, um, and I'll stop there. There, but there's all kinds of little, you know, human stories and human bits, good and bad and wacky, all woven through, that you would find at a lot of that. You know, any good convention um, worth its salt would have little funky human stories. But this was such a pioneering, huge expectations. Uh, they they thought they had to sold out. That's the thing. They thought they had three sold out eighteen thousand seat shows. They really didn't know about that they weren't until a couple of days before. And it wasn't just that they weren't sold out. They really weren't sold out, like a fraction of what was supposed to be there. And, um, and, and, and at the time, people blaming Jerry Wellheit, the guy in the middle of this, and for years people saying, oh, yeah, he ran off to Mexico with the money. And it's like there was no money to run off with, guys. It, <laughs> you know. And, and part of the saga of doing this is wondering how I would treat that. But he, since that, he's... Uh, reemerged, reached back out to all his old friends, th- thought of this as a rock around his neck his whole life, which was also interesting because these were all kids in their 20s and 30s who were all capable event technical, you know, producer people. Even though they were young, they were totally capable of bringing this off. They were a little naive at times, 
But they had the skills to do this, and they had a couple of elder statesmen in the corporation and, you know, all that. And when it all went south, they'd planned to take it on the road and go to New York and Chicago and Vegas and L.A. and, you know, all over. And with Nimoy and with Ricardo Montalban jumping in on it after this first debut edition. So all of that went south. And so it was all these 20s, 30s-somethings, and they all just went back to their lives. And it's not like people, you know crumbled up in a ball and jumped off a cliff or anything, but they all carried it in their back pocket. The human end of this was also how these... So now they're all in their, you know, 50s. And um, and how they look back at it then and now, and a lot of them are like, I knew someone was going to... I knew this was a story that needed to be saved. I knew someone would do this. <laughs> so, and, but, but Jerry was really suspicious at first that I, we were dredging up bad memories and all that. And I said, no, 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 I really see this as a phoenix, you know, a phoenix story from the ashes. And and was it a simpler, gentler, brighter time? And could this happen today? And would it, you know, and is it even possible for us to even compare? Is it apples and oranges between, you know, instantaneous 24-7, everything on digital media in the moment? Would this even happen? And so much pop culture out there. And there's 42, excuse me, there's 47 different, you know, hit shows on 4,700 different channels. You know, is something as unique as, you know, is there anything unique enough that this would apply to. So those are all interesting little threads that I, I hope we can weave through the story at the same time too and, and look at the organizers and the people involved as, as you know, the celebrity side and the organizing side and then the and the fans, the fans who, I mean, the organizers are one thing and so many of the fans were like, there, there was a problem. I, I got everything I paid for. <laughs> so it's it's really interesting that way. Now that's 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 so great about what you do, Larry, because you you've archived and documented and interviewed all these little little stories that are kind of off the beaten path from Trek fandom. Because you know, as we've lived and breathed Star Trek here as, as Trekkies, like we we've heard all the big ones. We've heard we we know all the stories. We know what Jonathan Frakes is going to get up and talk about at every convention, right? So we, we we know all that stuff, right? But but you know, you're you're pulling out these 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 lost stories, these uh, just points of view that you don't get to hear a lot about it, and that's just always fun, especially when. You know, from my perspective, like, man, this is something that was even before I was born. But it's like, this is a really huge thing about Thank Star you, Zach. Trek. He has a way of doing that, Larry. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just kind of throws those digs in. I, well, yeah, it's, it's a cool, it's cool history. You know? Oh, it is cool. And, and you know, the, the, just like the recent show that, that Zach came up with, with uh, the fact that the BBC had banned all kinds of Star Trek episodes and stuff. It, it never heard of it, right? And we just kind of dug into it. It was kind of cool. Oh, and, yeah. And, and this is similar. You know, I mean, it's it's like, okay. It's it's like archaeology almost for Star Trek, but from a um, from a distribution point of view, Larry. So when this stuff is done and dusted and busted and, and ready to go, how how is this going to be? Uh, how are consumers going to get their hands on this thing? That's a good question, Ken. Hopefully, hopefully all of them. Um, no, that's one thing I haven't delved into yet. We're just trying to get it done. But I mean, all it's easier now. I've been talking to some people lately. There are so many ways, and I mean, I want to have some. Some nice premieres. I want to thank people who put into it. I can see we'll have more than one premiere. We'll have to have a Houston premiere. Yeah, we'll Houston a, premiere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. It's you and I have kind of missed the missed the paths here. You know, I was yeah. just starting to re get into Star Trek fandom as you were doing this, and I think when we finally met at Las Vegas, you're like, "Have you heard of the Connor Rath?" I'm like, "Yeah, actually, I found out about this after it was all." You had already said final Houston shoot. Da, 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 like, like about a year. Where have you been, Zach? I got a yeah. Track <laughs> Yeah, he owns he owns a production company, Larry. He could have really helped you out with this. Oh thing. my I god! Do, I do, I do. Yeah, it would have been a great fit. So next time, Larry. <laughs> now he tells me. 
Now he tells me. Well, we'll we'll have a premiere. We we may have to make one. We may come up with snippets of things on a bucket list that we have to come back and you know specific things we have to zoom in and and shoot. So maybe we'll have that. But at least we'll have a premiere for Houston. I I it's been. Um, I keep trying to reach out into the modern Houston fandom, which is uh, which has been kind of interesting. I mean, I've been in touch with them, but I don't think. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say I don't think they get it. But I don't think they get it sometimes. There's a documentary about their town that's about to be unleashed. And, you know, I just want to reach out and have some have some contact coordination when we have our premiere in Houston. But I want to have one back home in Oklahoma. Uh, I want to – we'll have something in L.A. We'll try to do something at Vegas or one of the – you know, at least one of the big Comic-Cons somewhere. I've talked to a lot of the – some of the Comic-Con film festival people that want to have, if not a premiere, at least a screening and have – you know, so they'll, they'll be all of that happening and um and i fi- i finally won't be just the word guy um but uh so that'll happen we'll have life you know um i would love to uh you know and and there's so many like from netflix on down now the online downloading and itunes and all of that is available now that wasn't around you know 5 years ago much less 10 so we'll go to that and we'll have some you know we'll have i'll have copies for sale it it will we'll run a run then i can sell on hand at conventions um and streaming, we've my God, we'll have tons of bonus feature content that uh, there'll be so much when we have to get brutal. Since I've went and interviewed so many damn many people, uh, so many wacky little stories probably won't get into the into the main flow of it. So we'll have about a billion, um, you know, uh, bonus feature type uh, content, and so much of the material from the '82 era and the show and the graphics and. You know the programs and the program. Books you were able to get notes. a lot of the uh, like stock footage and stuff. Uh, we do have stock footage. We're looking at the quality of it now, but I think we even have. Did I mention that the local news stations came out to do stories about how Star Trek was ripping off fans? <laughs> we we are chasing a news clip, a PR news clip tape uh, from the day where all the three the three local stations uh, sent news vans, and they were like running, chasing around after some of the, you know, the committee staff. You know, wow. what do you say to things that you've ripped off fans, Star Trek fans here in Houston? And, that's uh, great PR. <clears throat> yeah, that's great PR. And Harv Bennett making calls to the network news friends he had to say, don't pay attention to the news coming out of Houston. This is not us. <laughs> it's not, pay no attention to those. Yeah. yeah. Those, we were all doing that back then. Yeah. Houston, whatever. These aren't the, yeah. these aren't the news stories you want. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have a big crunch time coming. It started a little slower than I wanted to, but uh, my editor and I are going to get on this here in the next few months, and we have two or three or more shoots, uh, maybe with people whose names you'd recognize, but I won't get into that for the moment. Um, I've got more than enough. I, I started this off just being very humble because I thought the story was the strong point. The story and the vibe of the texture, but that was my... my I, I started to say, I want this to not just be a documentary for the convention circuit. I want human beings to come away with this. And, you know, and, and we're so, it helps that we're so pop culture savvy now and that the geeks won. You know, it's like when Leonard died and I remember some fans saying, well, I wonder if the mainstream media will pay attention to this. And it was like, guys, we, we are the mainstream media now. You know, we have a, we, ha- we had a Trekkie president. We had, you know, everybody did all the late night talk shows. You know, Moment of Zen on Daily Show was, you know, was Leonard so because um, it had affected that many people and that many scientists and entertainers and you know so we do permeate that so I I think that will resonate with everybody so my hope is that there will be 
without getting too hoity-toity about it, that there'll be a human, a human nature element that just can't help but transcend looking at something from 30 years ago and now with a connective thread like that. Um, like I said, compare and contrast. Sure. So with all that, with all that footage that you have, and you say bonus features or whatnot. Is is there another documentary within that documentary? I guess you know tales I, from Trekland. I mean, I, I'm sure it must have gone in different paths. Um, well, we'll see. Like I said, my the first idea I had was the Carney's idea with the dealers because I was like, I'm not going to be able to use most of this footage in this, but some of these guys deserve their own their own uh, the, or a reality show. I think you could do a reality show and follow like six or seven dealers around on the circuit. You know, and them loading and unloading and the the customers that come by and all that. I think that would be a great reality show. I'm probably giving it away here now. Somebody's going to hear this. <laughs> Go pitch it to Mark Burnett and replace, you know, Mar- uh, The Apprentice 2 or something. Um, but that's one. But I really would – I would love to do – and at the risk of, you know, at the risk of getting stereotyped, I somebody needs to do one about uh, – if not, uh, you know – older conventions, someone needs to do something about the original New York conventions that started all this. Because the big picture of this is, it's just lucky that we're in Trek fandom, but the big picture of this is, like I said, the original sci-fi convention for the original 40 years had been sci-fi cons, and they hadn't changed. And nothing out of, you know, part of this was the sophistication of TV and film, you know, it was budget and the overhead that you need to do science fiction, speculative, imaginative fiction. And so you you did have the peaks, you know, the silent era, you know, what R.U.R. and Metropolis were like isolated peaks. And then, you know, even you know, genre films, if you want to call The Wizard of Oz or something, that was a musical. But, you know, and then in the 50s when you have, you know, um, um, Forbidden Planet and Day the Earth Stood Still – you'd have those rare spikes of science fiction that would get everybody excited and then that would spawn a little bit like happened after Star Wars. You'd have everybody cranking out B-crap just to, you know, ooh, science fiction fad, quick, slap makeup on that guy and paint him green and throw the camera on him, you know, in Plan 9 from Outer Space. And, <laughs> and nothing sustained, so there was no real, and much less TV, and oh my God, a budget like that would be so huge for, you know, we had Space Patrol and... And uh, uh, what Rocky Jones video, the Video Ranger, whatever. There are early two or three, you know, space sci-fi shows for kids. Um, and, and James Doohan wasn't one of those, right? Uh, yeah, he was a guest star. Space in one Command. Of them. Space Command. Yeah. Now there was a '70s Saturday oh, morning star TV Command. show. I'm sorry. Yeah, star that Command. he was. That's what it was. He yeah. was on post Star, star Trek. That was in color, yeah. but even I'm talking even the even the '50s. But it wasn't until you know then um, Twilight Zone was the first. Adult science fiction on TV that made it, but it was an you know right. it was a it was an anthology. It wasn't recurring characters. So Star Trek was the first you know, and heaven forbid, sci- uh, Lost in Space was what I played in recess in grade school. But it <laughs> it wasn't going to catch on big time. And so Star Trek was the first adult sci-fi. On TV. So you're talking about all I'm saying is a movie is a one-off. A TV show gives the opportunity for people to have those people in their living the people in that universe in their living room every week and build up a fandom. So the the um, what I'm the critical mass for changing what pop culture fandom conventions would look like couldn't come along until Star Trek. I don't know. Did they have Doctor Who conventions even in the UK in the 60s when it was hot there? When the Daleks, you know, Dalek fever and all that by the mid late 60s, were they having Who conventions? I'm I'm sure a Who expert could tell me. But what I'm saying is in the states anyway. 
it took Star Trek and the kind of thing it was to make all that possible. And the, but flash forward now to where we have everybody and their dog is in a genre show. There's you know forty seven thousand of them. They populate yeah, how, the comic. How many time travel shows and yeah, all that stuff today. Yeah, like, there's, there's yeah. a new time travel show coming out every week. It seems. <laughs> but but the template for all of that, the first thing that broke out of the mold again, it was the Litznob fandom, you know, sneering at the Trekkie girls. And so the Trekkie girls and guys all said, fine, we'll do our own convention. And that was the first New York convention, you know. And, oh, my God, look, we planned for 500 and got 3,000 or whatever it was, 2,000, 3,000. And then they're off and running. And then the myth of the Trekkie and the, you know, overloaded main hall to see these guys, these actors who never got residuals, but now they're demigods and they go home to their two-bedroom flat, (laughs) you know. That whole thing happened and the whole resurrection of Star Trek and the whole way that you know, licensing and product, and then four years later came Star Wars, and then bang, you're off to the races. But even then, Star Wars was a movie, and most of those people, like I said, weren't going to do conventions. So we sit here and talk about Star Trek, you know, cons versus the pop culture, the, the comic cons, and all of that, and all the plethora of genre shows. But Star Trek was where it all started. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think we're, we're pitching for the home team here, you know, rooting for the home team too much. It's it. That's where the that's where the branch branched off. You see what I'm saying? And set the t- and the. I think the paradigm, the template, started with that. And so, Con of Wrath is still. It's only ten years into that, and um, so that's why I think it's interesting to uh, take a breath and backtrack. And if you backtrack down the family tree far enough, you 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 pass the Con of Wrath, and you before you get to those you, the original New York cons. So, well, that's awesome, Larry. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and. Let us know about Connor Rath, everything's going on there, and what to expect from that coming up. And so, so if people want to keep in touch uh, with what you got going on there, all your other projects, and I know you, you got your hand in a lot of things. You got Portal Forty Seven, Trekland. You know, where can people find you? Where can they seek you out online? Well, the best thing is my newly redesigned website, LarryNimichek.com. But I, I mentioned Portal Forty Seven earlier, but that's Portal Forty Seven is the the things I wanted to do with the Con of Wrath before they're forgotten about or, or their stories not shared or their, you know, files not widely known and seen. Um, that's what Portal 47 is. It's a chance for me to do that every month with more and more and more fans. So as, as a business, so it's returning something back to me, but getting so many people and so many voices out to fans. Um, like I say, like a mini con all year long, no matter where your center seat is, you know. So we're no savvy fans gone before. So yeah, that's at portal47.net. But everything is is centered still at LarryNimichek.com. Uh, the con of wrath.com is a page if you want to put a little something in or even more than that. Or you want to talk to me about being a producer. This is the time. Um, uh, there's a page there with PayPal links to donate, but also a, a, a rough cut of the teaser and some of the people talking. Um, what else? Oh, and I want to tell you guys, I, I have not been promoting this, but this is the off year for the, the uh, Geek Nation tours, the big L.A. to Vegas tour that we've done every other year before Vegas convention. This is the year we don't do the big tour, but we have the one-day tour. So if you're going to Vegas, STLV, hashtag, <laughs> if you're going to Vegas, if you come in for early Sunday or Tuesday morning, excuse me, con starts on Wednesday in early August. Um, I believe it's August 1st is the Tuesday. Come in and go out with us to the Valley of Fire. I I call it the Kirk Memorial Death Tour. But we go out (laughs) to the Valley of Fire, and it's a one day, and you can go to geeknationtours.com and find it there. Um, 
and um, I'll be leading that as I have been. It's We start early in the morning to beat the heat and go out to where they filmed all the uh, Viridian 3 mountain scenes and on some crazy, again, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, some crazy stuff that has happened out there in the Valley of Fire that's related to the movie but not exactly part of it, but still part of it. So um, every year we've gone, we found some different uh, different things every year. So anyway... That's GeekNationTours.com. Go and look at the the, uh, the Valley of Fire tour, the one day, if you want to get a taste of what the big tour is like. So I need to I need to talk that up, so I should mention that too. But anyway, but that's it. Larry Nimichuk on Twitter, and uh, if you're a collector, the Trekland Trunk on Facebook too. But Larry Nimichuk's Trekland on Facebook, and there's a Con of Wrath and a Portal 47 Facebook page too. So there you go. Oh, and Instagram. I have an, I have an Instagram now. Yay. You are so tech savvy, Larry. It's incredible. Oh well, look at you. I'm I, you know, if I wanted to have things that were race in ten minutes, I would do Snapchat too. But I still don't. I still don't see Snapchats. We finally got Ken to get on Twitter a few months ago, so he he's getting in, getting to the twenty first oh, century. Oh, okay. Now. Yeah, not okay. not exactly an early adopter over here, but you know we're trying. Alrighty. Well, the Connor Wrath isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week on Trek FM. Here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. I open up the garment bag and I see this like red tunic, like this top. I'm like, wait, this looks really familiar. Like, so I try it all on. I try on all the wardrobe. Everything fits great. And I look at myself in the mirror. I'm like, holy bleep. And I turn to the wardrobe supervisor. I said, is this Star Trek that I'm working on? To the journey! Leola root is a substitute for any ingredient he doesn't have. No sugar, Leola root. Yeah. No bananas, Leola root. No coffee, Leola, Leola root. root. Saturday morning trek. Roddenberry uh, was very involved with the first episode. And for that episode, we needed to come up with the derelict spaceship. And as a result, as the brand new guy on the on the crew <laughs> who had spaceships and stuff in his uh, portfolio, I got the job of coming up with that ship. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. I mean, obviously, you have Nicholas Meyer writing for your Star Trek show. Is there any way that they're not going to be like, hey, Nick, you want to direct an episode? Because, I mean, like, would they, I mean, I cannot see any scenario in which they'd be like, I don't know, man. I don't know if he's right for this gig. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes and helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. If you would like to get in touch with us here at trek.fm, you can always find us on trek.fm contact and look in the sidebar on the show page or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar.
So let me talk to you for a second about Patreon, Zach. Patreon is the program that Trek FM employs in order to get donations to keep the network coming to you commercial free. It is wonderful. Most of the hosts here on Trek FM are big contributors to Patreon and found our way onto the network through Patreon. So if you can uh, spare any money, uh, and we don't care what the denomination is, it really means a lot to us because there is a lot of content that we're putting up there, a lot of bandwidth, a lot of programming, a lot of equipment that we need. So please, if you can help us out, we'd appreciate it. And all you have to do is go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash track FM, and you can you can click any donation you want. And we do have some incentives for you. So for $15 a month, you get to join the Patrons Roundtable where you podcast. And, and, you know, again, that is where a lot of us started. It was on the roundtable. I was on the very first one. I had a blast. And if you can contribute $25 or more per month, then you get associate producer credits for whatever show you like. And we love our associate producers. So, Please, 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 if you if you have the ability, it is more than appreciated. And speaking of our associate producers, thank you from the bottom of our hearts to Renee Roberts, Aaron Harvey, Nicholas Anastasio, and of course, Norman Lau. Thank you all for your support of Standard Orbit and Trek FM through Patreon. Now, you can find Renee at Twitter at Emrys underscore 1701. You can find our buddy Aaron Harvey at Geek Filter. You can find Norman Lau at Starfighter1701. And you can, you can uh, interact with Nick and all of us on the Babel Conference, and that's, that's where we find uh, Nick hanging out all the time. Yeah, and you can find me on the Babel Conference. I love to hang out there. And you can reach me through Facebook directly or via Twitter. My handle is at BostonSCPO. That stands for Senior Chief Petty Officer. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H, and I'm also the host of my own podcast called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show from the early 2000s, and we're on Twitter at AlwaysMallville, with one S. And also, I'm around the Babel Conference as well, it's always great to talk to you guys on there, making conversation about our shows, other shows, general Star Trek topics, anything really, on there. So thanks for listening, everyone. And join us again next time here on Trek.fm for another episode of Standard Orbit.